searching for murder suspects. The two suspects, described as heavier set males, wearing face coverings, fled the scene on foot. IHIT's new theory about how the gunman escaped after killing Hardeep Singh Nijjar. New netting to protect Highway 4. It is a very challenging time, but we are working as quickly as we can. The major work to make it safe enough to reopen for the weekend. And National Indigenous Peoples Day. My heart is sorry. How people across the province are celebrating First Nations pride. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. And we'll start in Surrey, where police believe they know the escape route of the suspects who gunned down Sikh leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar outside of Surrey Gurdwara. We'll go live to Krista Dow, who's near the crime scene for us tonight. And Krista, take us through what investigators believe happened here. Chris, we're here at the exit point of the escape route where police believe the two suspects believed to be behind the killing of Hardeep Singh Nijjar fled from the parking lot of the Gudora and then ran down here where they emerged from the park of Cougar Creek Park on 121st Street and got into a waiting getaway vehicle. We believe that the suspects then fled on foot southbound down 122nd Street towards Cougar Creek Park. More than 72 hours after Surrey Gudwara President Hardeep Singh Nijjar was gunned down in his truck in the parking lot outside a prominent place of worship. Police releasing new information about the suspects and where they may have fled. It's believed that the suspects and their vehicle may have been in that area uh, for at least an hour prior to the homicide. The suspects described as two heavier set males wearing masks. The homicide team's theory, after the shooting just before 8.30 Sunday night, the suspects fled on foot from the Godora parking lot to 122nd Street, then south to Cougar Park, cutting through the park and emerging on 121st Street just north of 68th Avenue, where police believe a getaway vehicle was waiting. Even if you didn't see anything that you thought suspicious at the time, please contact us if you have dash cam video. Police are still investigating whether a burnt-out car in Coquitlam is related to Niger's death. The shooting, which police believe was targeted, sending shockwaves through the Sikh community. We have no reason to believe that the Sikh community is at risk. But members of the Sikh community disagree and say Niger was publicly concerned for his safety and was receiving threats. I know in today's press conference, the police said that general members of the Sikh community have nothing to fear. I would actually disagree with that. I think that where you have a president of a Gurdwara shot on his own uh, premises, that's sending a message. Singh, like many others, believes the 45-year-old was targeted for being a Khalistani, a supporter of a separate Sikh state. I would suggest that the police are probably doing all they can to find who pulled the trigger. But really the question that we have is who ordered the hit? Chris, the homicide team really appealing to witnesses or anyone who has dash cam video, particularly at the time of the shooting in the parking lot of the Gudora. And vehicles like Tesla are capable of recording movements, even if the vehicle is turned off. So anyone who was in the area is asked to call police. Chris. That could be key evidence. Thanks very much, Krista. Now, more than two and a half weeks after Highway 4 on Vancouver Island was shut down due to an out-of-control wildfire, a major construction job is underway to allow it to be safely reopened. 
As Richard Zussman shows us, crews are now hanging huge steel curtains to catch debris, but the exact timeline for reopening that vital route is still uncertain. It's an emergency repair job best seen from the sky. Crews from BC's Ministry of Transportation getting Highway 4 ready to reopen. This area is obviously challenging for a number of reasons. And one is just because um, the fire was quite intense. And so it, it did take a toll on the slope. And the slopes are quite steep and quite high. The stretch of highway through the Cameron Lake area has limited travel to a significant part of Vancouver Island since June 6th. The Cameron Bluffs fire impacting the infrastructure, requiring crews to clear roads, blast rock, and put up various safety barriers, including fence and nets. The goal is to open for alternating traffic this weekend. We don't have an exact time frame as we continue to kind of work to put in all the preparatory pieces. The current detour route will remain in place until the road is fully reopened. For now, the plan is for that to happen in mid-July. But the work being done now is a relief for the community. It gives a lot of confidence from my perspective, and I know I've heard this kind of anecdotally in the community as well, that, that people feel a confidence in traveling that route, um, seeing the extent of the work. The hope is the phased reopening will ease the significant impact the closure has had on businesses across the region, including in Tofino and Port Alberni. It's hard to obviously quantify the impact that it's had. I know myself, I have a restaurant and we've definitely seen a reduction. This is a tourist time of year. The rise of weather-related events and the impact on business has BC's Chamber of Commerce calling on all levels of government to ensure they have programs in place to provide quick support. We need to be strategic, we need to think broadly, we need to be innovative and we need to be proactive. And that means looking at the current programs available to see if, for example, the criteria still stick. The province is closing Cathedral Grove and two other picnic areas until the highway is fully reopened. A small concession to take a big concrete step forward. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Also tonight, a quick update on the rock slide near Summerland that's caused significant delays for drivers for more than a month now. The Ministry of Transportation says last month's geotechnical assessments determined there was about 4,000 cubic meters of unstable material on the slope above the highway, and all of that has to be brought down safely. Crews have been gradually doing that since the slide happened back on May 15th. Larger material on the slope face, however, requires blasting, and because of that, Highway 97 will be closed tomorrow from 1 to 2 p.m. for an initial blast. The highway will otherwise continue to be open to single-lane alternating traffic until further notice. The ministry's goal is to restore two-way traffic by the end of next week, with the entire project likely to be done by mid-July. Two people have died in a crash in Tassus Inlet on the west coast of Vancouver Island. The crash happened about 2 p.m. on Tuesday. The plane, with four people on board, was flying from Masset on Haida Gwaii to Tofino, the Coast Guard and Nootka Sound RCMP responded and two people were rescued. The RCMP Transportation and sorry, the RCMP Transportation Safety Board and Coroner Service are all investigating the cause of the crash. More reaction today to a story we told you about last night. The City of Surrey's Ethics Commissioner ruled Councillor Rob Stutt breached the code of conduct. It happened last November when he voted on Surrey policing. Janet Brown reports on the effort to find Stutt to get his reaction to it.
Councillor Rob Stutt hasn't been available to respond. Hello. Hello, it's Janet Brown from Global News. I'm wondering if uh, Rob is home. No, I'm sorry. Do you know if he's willing to speak with us about the commissioner's findings? I have no idea. Have you been able to pass my message along to him? Yes, I have been. The Surrey Police Union lodged the complaint with the Ethics Commissioner, alleging conflict of interest by Stutt for not disclosing his son was employed at the time by the Surrey RCMP and his daughter was a civilian employee with the force. The November vote was very critical and we do feel like that vote changed the trajectory of the last seven months. A summary of the Ethics Commissioner's findings says, while Stutt did not have a direct or indirect pecuniary interest in the matter under consideration at the November 14, 2022 Council meeting, there are other forms of a personal interest in a matter that can give rise to a conflict of interest where a reasonably well-informed person would conclude the interest might influence the exercise of the Council member's duties. Several city councillors say Stutt should have known better than to be part of the vote. If he stepped out of the room, which I believe he should have, it would have been a hung vote and the motion would never have got through. I think he should have thought a little bit more carefully. You know, he's a seasoned RCMP officer. The mayor, quite frankly, who is a seasoned politician, should have guided him. In a statement, Mayor Brenda Locke says, the potential for a conflict of interest appears to be eliminated, adding, I am disappointed misinformation continues to be spread in a partisan campaign to discredit certain members of council and the Surrey RCMP. Meanwhile, we are still waiting for Councillor Stutt to get back to us. I gave him the message. Do you know if he's able to talk with us today? I have no idea. Janet Brown, Global News. Now, late this afternoon, Councillor Rob Stutt did issue a statement that says in part that he fully supports the Office of the Ethics Commissioner and, quote, my son was actively seeking a transfer from Surrey Detachment, which is documented by the RCMP, well before the 2022 civic election. I believed this would alleviate any perception of conflict. He also says he remains committed to public safety in Surrey. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the back and forth over policing in Surrey, which still continues. Keith, you've just spoken to Minister Mike Farnworth. What's he saying about Surrey's internal report that led to its decision? Yeah, this is the so-called corporate report. Of course, he signed a non-disclosure agreement, so he can't get into the details. He did tell me he has a senior staff in his ministry have been beavering away, examining this report, which seems to be about 400 pages since it re was received Monday afternoon. Still no sense of a timeline when their job's going to be finished here. So things are still going to be hanging in the air for some time. But it appears it's not going to take as long as it took the ministry to prepare its report to respond to the Surrey RCMP and SPS report some months ago. That took about two months. And now that so much groundwork has been laid and so much information is out there, it's not expected to take that long. One of been a number of reports. One of the key differences between the Surrey report and the ministry report seems to be over the estimated cost of what it would actually cost the city to transfer, to continue to transfer for Surrey police services. We won't know those details, of course, until this report is released. It's potential that it could never be released because everyone who has a copy of this, Chris, has signed a non-disclosure agreement. And until those agreements expire, no one can talk about it. Unbelievable. Okay, thanks very much, Keith. RCMP have released images of a woman suspected of defrauding a Surrey business of several hundred thousand dollars using fake 
Police say on March 18th, the woman used another person's identity to cash two separate bank drafts worth $237,000 at a currency exchange in the 8,000 block of 128th Street. She is 5 feet 7 inches tall with shoulder-length shoulder hair. Police say she spoke Hindi, Punjabi and English. And if you recognize the person, you're asked to, of course, contact Surrey RCMP. A forensic expert testified at the trial of Ibrahim Ali, who was charged with first-degree murder. Jeremy Fenn examined DNA that was found on the young teenage victim whose body was found in Burnaby Central Park in 2017. Ramina Dea has the details. DNA evidence is the crux of this case. No eyewitnesses. We are now learning what DNA was found, but what was not found is equally important. The young teen was discovered partially nude in the forest in Burnaby Central Park almost six years ago. Crown counsel trying to prove the accused, Ibrahim Ali, strangled the teenager to death in the course of sexually assaulting her. Ali has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. RCMP forensic expert on identification of sperm, Jeremy Fenn, examined samples of swabs taken from the girls' private areas and determined sperm was present. But the unknown sticky substance found in a clump of the girl's hair and on her neck was not sperm. What was it? We don't know. Further testing was never done. The mouth swab also negative for sperm. The teenager's cell phone, shoes, jean shorts, underwear, none of her clothing was examined for sperm by Fenn. The breast area plus two other neck swabs and the teen's fingernails also never tested for sperm. Fenn testified, no one asked. Defense lawyer Kevin McCullough asking Fenn, did you think to yourself there must have been this chaotic scene of sex and then the person who had sex with them must have killed them. Therefore, I'm going to analyze all these things. Witness, no, I was not. Defense, I'm going to suggest to you, if you were thinking that, you'd have thought, well, that semen would be all over these swabs and those fingernails. Fair? No, you don't have to answer that, said the judge. He said he wasn't thinking that. Just as the DNA evidence was getting going, it came to a halt because of a scheduling conflict. It will resume in about a month from now on July 24th. Two new witnesses are expected to take the stand Thursday. Romina Dea, Global News. The frantic search and rescue mission in the Atlantic Ocean is running out of time. Canadian forces picked up a banging sound from the deep, but they still don't know where it's actually coming from. We'll have the latest on the efforts to retrieve the sub and its crew next on the News Hour. On in seconds, the latest twist in a bold daylight theft of a charity's coveted e-bike. Plus, <laughs> behold the barbecue. What inspired this amazing sculpture from a high school welding class coming up later on the news hour. Right now, though, time is running out very quickly for the five people on board a tourist submersible that vanished while on a deep dive to the wreck of the Titanic. A Canadian military surveillance aircraft detected underwater noises yesterday and again today, leading to an expansion of the search zone. Global's Mike Armstrong has the latest. We don't know what they are, uh, to be frank with you. The U.S. Coast Guard says experts are still analyzing what was heard. They are describing the sounds picked up by a Canadian P-3 aircraft as underwater noises. 
Now, some have described those sounds as possibly banging. That is what the crew on board the sub would do if they were stuck trying to be found. But it could also be something else, animals or debris clanging. The Coast Guard will only say remotely operated vehicles have been deployed in the area where the sounds were heard, but have so far not found anything. We, we hope that when we're able to get additional ROVs, which will be there in the morning, the intent will be to continue to search um, in those areas where the noises were detected, and if they're continuing to be detected, and then put additional ROVs down in the last known position where the search was originally taking place. There are now five ships searching around the site of the Titanic wreck. The Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker, the Terry Fox, headed out from the St. John's Harbour this morning. Five more ships are on their way, arriving in the next 24 to 48 hours. But the area they're searching is growing. Wind, waves and currents mean the sub could have drifted. The search area is now the size of Lake Erie and about four kilometers deep. We want them to come home and we want them to come home safely. The company that owns the ship that launched the Titan spoke out for the first time Wednesday. The ship and its crew are still on site participating in the search. This is an unprecedented situation, but I can assure you that they're handling their responsibilities very professionally and fully focused on trying to find the submersible and bring those people back safely. You know, it's it's obviously very distressing. Colin Taylor yeah, knows the missing true. sub. He went down in the Titan last summer to the Titanic wreck. Taylor also knows two of the missing men. This is not a tourist um, operation. The CEO of the company that runs the sub, Stockton Rush, and French maritime expert Paul-Henri Narjolet. Taylor says the sounds picked up underwater are finally some potentially positive news. You know, knowing uh, PH Narjolet is on there, ex-French Navy, uh, I am sure he is there tapping away on those titanium domes, uh, hoping that someone is listening. Now, two of the missing men are from a wealthy Pakistani family. They are a father and son. When Taylor went down last summer, he also took his son along. He says they went through all the preparations and the training. But before they went down, just before they went down, he took his son aside and asked if he was really ready, if he really wanted to go through with it. He said he was, and it went off without a hitch. But with two men, a father and son now missing, it's been hard this week for Taylor not to think about that aspect of it. And by the way, worth noting, Sunday, the launch day, was also Father's Day. Mike Armstrong, Global News, St. John's. And a Vancouver pioneer in the field of deep sea submersibles says the situation is indeed dire for the five people on board the Ocean Gate mini sub. 90-year-old Jack Russell worked with the Pisces submersibles that were built in North Vancouver back in the late 1960s. As you heard, teams looking for the missing Titanic sub have picked up those banging sounds from the area Tuesday and Wednesday. Russell says tapping would likely be the only way those on board could communicate with the outside world. But I'm sure worried about the people. Their only means of communication would be tapping, and they would start off being very concise in their tapping, and as time goes by, it would get scrambled and because uh, they're cold. They're very, very cold. Uh, they're tired, and uh, they're very worried. Searchers maintain this is still very much a search and rescue mission, but they admit as well those in the sub likely only have a few hours of oxygen left. We'll change gears a bit just ahead, joining the party for Indigenous Peoples Day. Today it's all about friendship, it's all about making connections. A celebration of First Nations culture and carrying on important traditions. 
plus bad romance. Saanich police arrest a man accused of swindling tens of thousands of dollars from those looking for love online. Thousands of people are marking National Indigenous Peoples Day with ceremonies across the province. It's a time for participants to acknowledge the past and celebrate Indigenous culture, but also work towards a more just and equitable future. Kamal Kuramali is live at one of today's celebrations with more on the importance of this day. Kamal. Chris, the importance uh, really stems around togetherness to community. You can see uh, a lot of that happening behind me here. Uh, and uh, what's happening on stage, uh, also a showcasing of the Indigenous culture. Uh, what we have there is called the Wild Moccasin Dancers Round Dance, which signifies friendship and unity. They've called people in from the crowd to take part in this round dance. This year's celebrations held by the Semiamu, Kwantlen and Kutsi First Nations, always a popular event and this year is no different. An annual celebration for indigenous people in Surrey that appears to be growing fast. I've been involved in, in Indigenous Peoples Days for the past six years. We've grown, we've grown tenfold. For residential school survivor Eugene Harry, watching the number of Indigenous youth showcasing their culture on this day is something he never thought he'd see, especially after watching people trying to eradicate his First Nations heritage. And I'm just so blessed to see uh, kids dance in their regalia and where it was forbidden, now it's coming out and it's thriving. And that's the beautiful. The National Day of Celebration of First Nations, Inuit and Métis people happening across B.C. Including in Williams Lake, where more than 150 suspected unmarked graves have been discovered at a former residential school. We've had many, many years of healing. Our culture was taken away from us. Our drums were taken away from us. Our languages were taken away from us. A day to remember the past and to heal, but it's also about more than that. To be able to focus on the good parts of our history and our future, rather than to always have the focus on the trauma. In Vancouver, a march to celebrate. My heart is soaring. It's happy. People haven't celebrated this day together for a long time, so... How does that feel now that you're all together? Wonderful, wonderful. With a row of boots to share some of that culture with the public, Shirley Brown went to Indian Day School, forced to suppress her Indigenous roots, but now she shares her First Nations art proudly. I have the cedar bracelets and the earrings. This is the traditional one, but the other ones are contemporary. It is about celebration and the recognition of First Nations people. Now this event in Cloverdale set to last until 8 p.m. tonight, but I hope the message, uh, unity, lessons learned, and friendship last a lifetime. Chris, back over to you. No doubt. Okay, thanks very All much right, for that, Kamal. Like a memorial a monument for children of Indian residential schools has arrived in Vancouver after traveling almost the length of Vancouver Island. Let's gather together to make this right for the future. It's about the youth. Let's lift our youth up to make it right for the future. The ceremony took place this morning in Victoria's Inner Harbour as the six-meter pole left on the final leg of its journey to Vancouver, securely held in the center of the Coast Guard hovercraft. 
The poll is the creation of master carver Stan Hunt, inscribed with the faces of children representing those who never made it home from residential schools. An upside-down cross, maple leaf, and RCMP letters represent bad decisions that led to the creation of the schools. And a reminder, there is a support for survivors. A 24-hour crisis line is available for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. You can call the number toll-free and speak in confidence at 1-800-721-0066. Theft and vandalism impacting a Victoria nonprofit. It was such a critical part of our outreach operations. The heist of a custom-built e-bike, stolen, then recovered, but unrideable. Plus, serious concerns about BC's medical imaging clinics and the potential fallout for patients. A Vancouver Island man accused of bilking dozens of would-be lovers out of hundreds of thousands of dollars is now facing criminal charges. 29-year-old Brody Brooks is alleged to have used various dating apps over the past three years to connect with people and then used lies to obtain money. Saanich police say he then ghosted the victims when they asked for their money back. He's now facing 16 charges, including fraud and impersonating a peace officer. Brooks has been released with a number of conditions, including not to use dating apps or enter into any private loan agreement. Capital Bikes' mission statement says its aim is to be there for everyone who wants to enjoy cycling. But now the Victoria charity is asking for help from the public after its beloved custom cargo bike was stolen from outside its office. As Kylie Stanton reports, the bike was recovered this afternoon, but it's in no condition to ever go back on the road. So we had the bike locked up here overnight. A couple of heavy-duty locks valued at more than $200 a piece securing a custom-built cargo bike on this busy, well-lit street. We've got a couple of businesses here. We've got a tenant upstairs. Even cameras were rolling. I feel like we did everything we could short of having a security guard <laughs> to make sure the bike didn't get stolen. But it wasn't enough. Security footage of the brazen theft shows a man arrives at around 5 o'clock Tuesday morning. He came in on his bike. He had a large backpack. His backpack was full of tools. The first thing he does is pull out a cordless angle grinder and gets to work. Sparks flying as he attempts to break through the locks. But when he found that was taking too long, he pulled off his backpack, found more tools. With a large wrench, he manages to finish the job. The locks come loose and the bike is free. He was definitely a professional. It took him less than a minute. The thief rides off a $10,000 hit to the Victoria nonprofit Capital Bikes. It's an expensive bike, and as, as a charity, we really, truly can't afford to replace it. And so that's really hard for us because it was such a critical part of our outreach operations. The bike, that's roughly two meters in length, had to be left outside Capital Bikes' building. Welcome to our very cramped office. In the middle of go-by bike week, there was no room to accommodate it inside. It's completely packed. Police say this is becoming a more common crime and cyclists need to be vigilant. We're seeing more and more of high-value bikes being targeted. Places that are commonly targeted would be carports, backyards, porches sort of bike storage facilities, um, anywhere like that. As far as statistics go, only 25% of stolen bikes are ever recovered. But on Wednesday, Capital Bikes 
beat the odds. We're both happy and sad. While the wheels, frame and brakes are intact, it will require a lot of work and roughly $2,500 to fix. Hopefully uh, the community can help us out a little bit and, and get us rolling again. Capital Bikes is now fundraising at CanadaHelps.org. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. In health matters tonight, yet another potential health crisis in lo is looming on the horizon, according to BC's medical imaging clinics. As Aaron MacArthur reports, community clinics say without more government funding, they're in danger of shutting down, making a bad situation even worse. For many people, this is the first stop in their fight against cancer. Come on forward, first of all. Or before any major surgical procedure. Modern medicine requires accurate imaging. Much of that work done in community clinics around BC, which operate much like family doctor's offices. Now the radiologists who do that work say the government is shortchanging them. Costs have gone up about 25%, but the fees have only gone up 5%. So the clinic owners are left shouldering that burden. The BC Society of Radiologists say the concern is that if clinics are forced to close shop because they can't afford to stay open, it will only add to the backlog in imaging. The delays for cancer patients means tumors are caught later. Surgery becomes more invasive and outcomes suffer. Doctors say the situation has spread to areas outside of cancer treatment. I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I operate on bones and joints. I cannot tell you what your problem is usually without one part of imaging, so there's absolutely no reason to come and see me without that. Critics wonder why the government would want to shut out community clinics, which for decades have been providing efficient, effective care for British Columbians. So what we need from political leadership is a willingness to look at whatever solutions are available and certainly not to undermine uh, the delivery of services that already exists in this province. BC radiologists first brought this issue up in September of last year and have written multiple letters to the Minister of Health asking for a resolution. Obviously there's more to do. We're going to work uh, with uh, the BC Radiological Society just like we work with the doctors of BC, the BC Nurses Union and everyone else to come to uh, solutions that work for the public. According to radiologists, some clinics have already scaled back services or reduced appointments, pushing more people to already overwhelmed hospitals. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Just ahead, wildlife welding. Trying to make it look like an actual bear and not like a cube. The challenge for these high school students to create the bear BQ and what they plan to do with it. And in sports, no rest for Canucks GM Patrick Alvin. His priorities heading into summer. From the stories that affect us all, look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. First day of the year, summer arrived right on cue, and that is a very colorful background behind you tonight, Christy. What's going on? Well, today is Show Your Stripes Day. This is a global campaign put on by the UN of Climate Change and basically urging everyone to show their stripes. And these are BC's stripes. This is the temperature change in British Columbia since in 1867. To your right, you can see a lot of red indicating that change that has occurred. Now, when you take all of the BC's just one little spot across the globe, and when you take all of these little spots across the globe and you average them out, these are the globe's stripes. Very striking indeed. 
indeed. So the temperature change across the globe from 1850 to 2022, and you can see a lot of red on the right-hand side, and we certainly have felt the impact of that here in BC. Now today, as Chris mentioned, first full day, or not first full, not first full day, but we changed over to summer officially this morning, and it certainly has turned out to be more summer-like. We had a few thunderstorm, uh, severe thunderstorm watches and warnings in effect, but those have now ended. We've got a few lightning strikes, but generally things are settling down. That will be the case. We've got lots of sunshine on the way for the first full day of summer. We are expecting a few isolated showers or thunderstorms in the afternoon, and that includes the Fraser Valley and East Metro Vancouver, so keep your eye on the sky. Beyond that, though, we have no major rain in the forecast. This is the temperature trend that we're expecting for areas through the Fraser Valley. It is going to remain above average. And in terms of rainfall, we may not see any more rain until, say, uh, middle part of next week. So the um, forest fire danger rating has come down, but very quickly that will come back up. I know that the campfire ban has been rescinded for the lower mainland, Sunshine Coast, not Vancouver Island, though. Uh, but quickly, I think you'll see that that will change as we don't have any rain and we are expecting some warmth. So 21 to 26 degrees and lots of sunshine beyond that. Uh, average temperature for this time of year is 20. Tonight, central windows weather window coming to you from Vernon and sharing this. And she called it the eve of summer solstice. Chris, mm. back to you. Beautiful. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. And thanks, Anne, for sending that in. And thanks, Squire, for showing up right on time. Thank you. As he does every night. Well, sometimes it's barely. I, 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 yeah, that's true, Chris. I that's true. will admit that there are some times where I'm not quite here. I'm a little tardy. <laughs> but as Van Halen once said, I don't feel tardy. Remember that song? I, I don't remember that one. Okay. I won't get into it. Anyway, okay. here's what I will get into. Uh, Christy uh, might be interested in this, too. The Whitecaps are supposed to play Colorado right now. Severe weather situation, so they've all had to leave the field. Fans have had to seek shelter, so the game is in a delay situation. We're going to talk to Patrick Alvin and find out what he's thinking about the Canucks as they head into the summer when things get really busy. Sounds good, Squire. Also tonight, grills gone wild. How a group of high school welders created their masterpiece, the Bear BQ. Of, of Van Halen videos. David Lee Roth, Van Halen, not Sammy Hagar. Anyway, yeah. uh, here we go. The Vancouver Canucks. Of course, uh, last week they bought out uh, Oliver Ekman Larson, and that suddenly put them 6.4 and a bit more underneath the salary cap. Now, will they spend it all this summer and get themselves back into the salary cap swamp, or will they be a bit more careful with money and follow the old motto when you come into a lot of money, don't spend it all in one place? Well, it definitely gives me opportunity to be part of even either trades or free agent signings. Um, if I'm going to use all of it, uh, it, it's too early to tell. Uh, what I want uh, to use it is to definitely to improve our team in, in some of the areas that, that uh, uh, we need to. The biggest need appears to be a third-line center, somebody whose best skill would be checking. The big blue-line addition, that already happened at the trade deadline when the Canucks acquired Philip Horonic. And there is hope, cheaper, younger defensemen already in the system 
would be part of the plan as early as this year. Uh, we saw last year that uh, uh, the, the addition of, uh, you know, Hiroshi and, and McWard was up here playing, uh, Philip Johansson getting in here, uh, Noah Jules and Jet Wu, the, those were the defensemen that I, I um, are excited about. I think they can come in here and, and uh, compete for, for ice time and roster spots. The Canucks aren't sure about whether they'll re-sign injured defenseman Ethan Bear, who won't be ready until maybe December. It looks like they won't try to trade Tyler Myers in the summer, nor do they seem very keen on trading Brock Besser anymore. Brock, as well as most of the other players, since Talk came in here and, and kind of established how we want to play and our identity, uh, there was definitely a significant improvement in Brock's game and, and how he played. One trade they might consider is their first overall pick, which is 11th in the draft. You know, there is a lot of... Uh, calls uh, regarding pick number 11 and and I'm looking at uh, options if we're going to trade up uh, if, if that's if that's something we, we have a chance to do uh, to get a player that the scouting staff has identified to be uh, uh, a more intriguing player than the one we're going to get at 11. Mind you if the Canucks hadn't won so many meaningless games down the stretch they wouldn't have to worry about trading up at the draft. Patrick Alvin is optimistic. Tanner Pearson's injured hand is finally getting better. He could be ready, ready for training camp. Ilya Mikheyev should be healthy for camp as well. They expect him to start skating in August. And then there's the question of Elias Pettersson's contract, which will run out after the coming season. After it runs out, he becomes a restricted free agent if he doesn't sign a new deal before then. Regarding Elias, uh, we're going we're gonna to sit down here when, when uh, the time is right. You know, I think Elias is a top player for this team. Uh, he, uh, his performance over the last season put him in the top, I would say, top 10, 15 players in the league. Um, he has a great future. Um, I want to have him part of this organization moving forward, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation with him. Uh, the good thing is there is no rush. Uh, we still have uh, his rights for another two years. Former Kamloops Blazers head coach, longtime NHL coach Ken Hitchcock is now in the Hall of Fame. Seven new members of the Hockey Hall of Fame were named today. There were some goalies going in. Henrik Lundqvist, Mike Vernon, Tom Barrasso, Pierre Turgeon is going to go in, as well as Pierre Lacroix, the late GM of the Avalanche, and Canadian women's legend Carolyn Ouellette. Once again, though, for some weird reason, Alex McGilney didn't get put in the Hockey Hall of Fame. The uh, BC Lions are in Winnipeg tomorrow night to play the team that beat them in last year's Western Final. It's a marquee matchup, but Lions head coach Rick Campbell doesn't want to make this game against the Blue Bombers a milestone game, considering it is still quite early in the season. We're very excited. Winnipeg's a very good team. Um, I told our guys, go, this is not a make-or-break-it game. And I didn't mean it to downplay it. It's just it's, it's week three of, of 18, and, and we need to make sure we're, we're improving each week. So, yes, we're totally excited for the game. Um, at the same time, we know the result of this game is not going to make or break the season, but we want to show improvement, and we're um, you know, totally on a mission to try to go there and, and beat these guys. I'm excited to go against them. They got a great defensive coordinator, a veteran defense, um, savvy defense, man. They, they're good at what they do and uh, very confident at what they do. So um, we have a confident group over here as well. So we're, we're excited to match up against these guys, the best team in the league. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. 
Now, as we said at last check, the Whitecaps and the Colorado Rapids are waiting for the weather to get a little better down there because apparently it's rather nasty right now. Too nasty for soccer. Let's hope it moves through quick. All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, the birth of the barbecue, a wild creation from a group of high school welders that would thrill any grill master. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan. Chris, a downside to all the recent rain. Okanagan cherry farmers are starting to get concerned about crop damage. Helicopters are on standby, ready to be used to hover over orchards in an effort to dry the fruit, which can split if water stays on it. Tonight we'll hear from the BC Cherry Association and tell you what else farmers are doing to try and save their precious crop. Plus, the new Canada Line station being built in Richmond is delayed. We'll have the new timeline for the Capstan station at 11. Chris. All right, thanks very much, Jordan. Now, it's a 4,000-pound behemoth you can't move without a forklift. A grizzly bear nine feet from snout to tail. The proud creation of 20 welding students at GW Graham Secondary School in Chilliwack. And as Grace Key shows us, it could bring the students top honors in a national welding competition. It's probably nothing like the metal shot project you had in high school. This is a 4,000-pound life-size bear with detailed textures around the face and even complete with fur, all welded together from metal by students at Chilliwack's GW Graham Secondary. So the fur is incredible. How many pieces are here and how long did it take you? I'm going to say it's over 5,000 pieces, probably more, and we've been working on it since September. But it's more than just an impressive piece of art. So how many burgers can you grill on this? I would probably get about 30 or 40 at a time. <laughs> it's quite a big barbecue. That's right. It's a functioning barbecue with eight bear paw burners, fish-shaped handles, and smoke coming out of the nose. So we started with the raw files. So they're literally just pictures, and um, we extrude them all and put them in a 3D program. Grade 11 student Nathan McNeil was the head engineer designing 48 pieces for the main body. Each had to be ground individually. The students got a lesson in perseverance. We missed one piece. We got it in the wrong slot. Oh, no. So I came along with my computer, and I was like, that's, that's not right. <laughs> so we had to tear it out, which took forever. <laughs> we had to put it back in, which took another forever. Yeah. <laughs> so nice loving you. Meet the welding team. They worked into the night and sacrificed weekends for the project. So what was the toughest part? I think the skin of it. Like when we were putting on the sheet metal to wrap it all. Trying to make all the pieces fit. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's so thin, it's so easy to burn through it. Try to keep the shape of the bear. Trying to make it look like an actual bear and not like a cube. <laughs> the class will enter the project into the Forged by Youth Award by the Canadian Welding Bureau for a $15,000 prize. Last year's winner was this go-kart. Win or lose, the group learned some important lessons. To have patience. Take your time. Yeah. Don't rush anything because that's when mistakes happen. Fixing mistakes takes longer than taking your time the first time, so might as well do it right the first time. I didn't expect this to come out of a shop class, and I'm beyond proud of the students. I think we'll all remember this for a long, long time. Grace Key, Global News. That thing is so impressive. They won't find out if they won that welding competition until September, but if they do, you know there's going to be a big celebration and very likely a large barbecue. I was going to say, between now and then, they can have a lot of good cues. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well That's done, in, students. It's incredible. We'll yeah. obviously announce the winner here, won't we, on the news yeah. hour? No doubt. Yeah. We'll stay in touch with them for sure.
All right, uh, first full day of summer tomorrow as we head towards the weekend, Christy. And it's going to feel like it. We aren't expecting any rain until potentially the middle part of next week. So enjoy the sunshine. We'll see a range in temperature near the water, 21 to 23 degrees over the next little while, and upper 20s away from the water. Over the weekend, by the way, we may see a little bit more cloud cover, but uh, as you can see, terrific conditions for the start of summer. It is going to feel like it. No. Don't forget, though, fire danger rating will skyrocket in just days. Excellent point. Thanks very much for watching, everybody. Have a great night. We'll see you back here tomorrow.